Well, good morning, Southern Hills. It's a joy to open up God's Word together. Would you please turn in your Bibles to our passage this morning, 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be going verses 1 through 14. Before we dive into the sermon, just a brief programming note. We are finishing the book of 1 Peter this morning, and I'm going to be gone next week, uh, going to a wedding of a good friend. So Brian Powers, one of our other elders, is going to be preaching next week. And then starting in July, we're going to begin a series through the Psalms, helping us see who God is, who we are as his people in relationship to him, and how we can respond to him with praise. So we hope that you'll join us for that and that it will be an encouragement to you. This morning, we come to the end of Peter's letter, to the capstone, to his concluding remarks. And in these verses, he shows us why he has been writing. In fact, he tells us in verse 12, he writes, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. And then he tells us why he wrote briefly. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter says, I'm writing to you, Christians, so that you might know the true grace of God. That you might know what God has done for you in the past. How he has chosen you and set you apart for Himself through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. How He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How God in His grace is guarding us by His power for a future inheritance that He is keeping for us in heaven. And so Peter has been writing and has been showing us the true grace of God, showing us all that God has done, is doing, and will do for His people. But he's not just writing this so that we'd know it in our heads or so that we would say, oh, that's pretty cool. I'm glad I have an inheritance ahead. He's writing because he wants it to change how we live. He wants us to see the true grace of God and then to stand firm in it, to plant our feet on the grace that God has given us and to stand firm. And he's writing that because he's writing to Christians who are being put under pressure by the world around them, and as we'll see in our passage, are under attack by the evil one. But in our concluding passage, Peter shows us some of the ways that we stand firm. And these are very practical things that have to do with how we live together and how we live in the world around us. So would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word as we see how we ought to stand firm. Peter writes, verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, 
be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peter here tells us that the whole reason he's written this letter is so that we would know the grace of God and that we would stand firm in it. And he's writing this because he knows that as Christians, we are chosen by God. We have received his grace. But as he said at the beginning of the letter, we are chosen exiles. We are aliens and strangers in this world. Because we belong to God, we do not fit in in the same way that we did before. We are on our temporary resident status, not on a citizenship paper. And so Peter is writing to Christians then, but also to all Christians now, and he's saying, I know that there are difficulties involved in being a Christian. There will be pressure from the world around you. And Peter has already made clear and makes clear in this passage, it's not just human opposition that will come to you if you are a Christian. There is also something deeper and darker behind that. And that is our adversary, the devil, the evil one. And so Peter is writing to Christians who are feeling the pressure, who are feeling their not fitting inness in the world around them, who are feeling the pressure of the attacks of Satan. And he's saying, I want you to stand firm in the grace of God. I want you to so know what God has done, is doing, and will do that you're able to plant your feet and you're able to stand even though things are hard. But he is giving this instruction not to us as individuals, but to us as a community. All of these commands here, humble yourselves, resist, stand firm, they are communal. They are plural. They are for us as a community of believers. We are called to stand together. And so Peter wants us to see how we ought to live together if we are going to stand in the grace of God. We're going to see four main ways that we do this. First, we ought to together put on humility. That is, put on humility like a garment and wear it in our relationships with each other. We are to watch, we are to resist, and we are to love. Put on humility, watch, resist, and love. Peter begins by showing us that we ought to stand firm by putting on humility. And he shows us this in verses 1 through 7. He begins by addressing the elders of the churches he's writing to. Now you might think, oh, this is written to elders, so if I'm not an elder, I don't need to pay attention to this part of the sermon. But this is something that should show you, if you are a congregation member, and should show those of us in the room who are elders, how elders ought to live, how they ought to serve the church, and how they ought to help the church to stand firm. Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He's saying, elders, I want you to do this. I want you to shepherd the flock of God. He's not saying, here's the qualifications for being an elder. He's not saying, here's who you should appoint as elders. There are other passages that do that. No, here he is telling the elders, he's saying, here is what you need to be doing. You need to do your job. You as elders, me, the other elders in this room, you need to shepherd the flock of God. Now this shepherd idea has an idea of guarding and guiding. Often we think of shepherding as sort of this beautiful pastoral picture. Maybe you've seen the paintings where it's the sun-dappled hills and it's rolling fields and the sheep look so peaceful and calm. That's not the picture of shepherding that Peter is talking about here. In the ancient world, shepherding was a dangerous occupation. You had to guard the sheep from thieves, especially from predators. If you were the shepherd, you had to put your life on the line for the sheep. And Peter here is writing to the church as the church is under pressure. He's going to go on to talk about how the devil is like a roaring lion looking to devour the sheep. And so he begins by addressing the elders and he says, Elders, I want you to guard the flock. I want you to guide the flock. I want you to exercise oversight of the flock because it is God's flock. It is the flock of God. It is valuable to Him. It is precious to Him. And so your job as elders is to guard them, to protect them from the devil who's this prowling predator looking to eat them. And he says, I want you to do this not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. I think the context here is that Peter is writing to elders during a time when the church is under pressure. And when the church is under pressure, the elders are the high-profile leaders of the church. And so if there's going to be flack that the church takes or pressure being put or persecution, guess who's going to get it first? The elders. And apparently, some of the elders don't seem to have been stepping up. So he's writing to the elders among you, saying to the elders among you, I write to you as a fellow elder, so I know what it's like to be an elder. I'm writing to you as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, so I've seen the path that Jesus took where he willingly suffered as the chief shepherd for the sheep. I know that there's glory to come. And so as a fellow elder and one who's watched the sufferings of Christ, I'm calling you elders to also be willing to suffer, to put your lives on the line for the sheep, and to do so not under compulsion, And not doing so begrudgingly, thinking, man, this is really risky, I might lose my reputation, I might be endangered, but rather to do so willingly. He's calling the elders to lay down their lives for their flock, to not consider their own interests, but to consider the interests of the church of God and the interests of the chief shepherd. He's calling them to humble themselves and not say, what's in it for me, how can I protect myself, but to lay their lives out on the line for the sheep. That is the expectation for you elders who are here looking at you guys in the room. But it's also the expectation you should hold us as elders to here in this church. That we should be elders who aren't in it for ourselves, but who are looking to serve you faithfully. So he's calling the elders to humility, to humble themselves by fulfilling their responsibilities and considering the interests of the church rather than their own. 
But he also knows that there are other ways that lack of humility can show up in the lives of elders. So he says, I want you to shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly. So being willing to sacrifice for the flock. But I also want you to shepherd the flock of God, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. He's saying here, I don't want you, if you're an elder, to be in it for the money. To be going about it just to get a paycheck or so you can make yourself fat off the flock. I'm not calling you as an elder to go and do your eldership duties so you can fleece the flock for yourself. Unfortunately, it is all too common and has been all too common throughout the history of the church that leaders in the church have done so, have served not for the good of the flock, but for the good of themselves. It happens in the Old Testament. It happens in the New Testament. It happens through church history. And it ought not to be. And Peter says, elders... I don't want you to avoid your elder responsibilities because you're in it for yourself. I don't want you to go about your elder responsibilities because you're in it for yourself. Both not avoiding pain and also not exploiting the sheep. So he's calling elders to not think of themselves first, but to think of the flock first. He's calling for humility. But he goes on. He says, I don't want you to shepherd the flock of God under compulsion or domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He says, I don't want you avoiding your responsibilities. I don't want you exploiting the sheep financially. But I also don't want you domineering over the flock. This is a word we saw when we were in the run-up to Easter, where Jesus was talking about how in the kingdom of God, the first are last, and the last are first, and that his apostles, the leaders in his church, should not lord it over their people like the kings of the Gentiles do. It's the same word here. And so Peter passes on this message from Jesus and he says elders should not be lording it over the flock that they are serving. They should not be abusing the flock for their own power or their own glory. They should not be exploiting the flock. They should not be uh, exerting force downward on the flock for their own gain. He is again calling the elders not to seek their own interests, but to seek the interests of the flock, to seek the interests of the church, to be humble, to fulfill their responsibilities. Because Peter knows that the health of the church will be directly related to the health of its leaders, to the degree that they're willing to sacrifice themselves, and to their willingness to better the church, even at great personal cost. Peter knows that there is an enemy prowling around the church that seeks to devour the flock and that unless the shepherds do their jobs well, there is risk. And so he's calling the elders so that the church can stand firm to humble themselves for the good of God's people. Now, if you're reading this, you might think this sounds like a pretty difficult calling for elders. They're called to put their lives on the line. They're called to undergo pain and suffering. So why would they do it? Why should elders go about this? Well, Peter makes clear that they should stand firm, living in humility, because they trust God. Because elders should trust that God will bring blessing to the faithful shepherd. It says, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, so when your boss shows up, elder shepherds, when he shows up, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You will receive blessing if you've lived this sort of shepherd, humble life that I'm calling you to live. 
If you're doing your job, if you're laying your life down for the sheep, if you're not exploiting them or abusing them, but you're serving them well, you're serving as an example to the flock, when your boss shows up, when Jesus shows up, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. A crown that will never lose its luster, glory that will never end. And so he's saying, I want you to press on, elders, even if it costs you, for the good of the flock, but also knowing that there is a reward ahead. So he's saying to the elders, put on humility. But then he makes a turn. He turns to talking to non-elders. And he says, likewise, verse 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. The word likewise is interesting. In what way is the congregation being subject to the elders like the elders doing this humble shepherd leadership? Well, I think in both cases, what Peter is saying is that whether you're an elder or you're not an elder, you are called to seek not only your own interests, but to seek what is best for the flock, to seek what is best for the community of faith, And that this will lead you to turn away from pride and seeking to have your own way or benefit yourself. And so for elders, that will look like laying yourself out for the flock. It will look like not exploiting the flock financially or abusing them with power, but laying your life down for the sheep. But for those who are not elders, the same renunciation of self-interest, of self-aggrandizement, will be by submitting to the elders, being subject to the elders. It's the same word that Peter has used in reference to being subject to government earlier in the book, in reference to wives being subject to husbands earlier in the book. And as we saw there, it wasn't an unqualified be subject. If the government calls you to do something sinful, you don't go along with it. If we as elders ever tell you to do something sinful, you should not obey us. But to the extent that we are faithfully following God, Peter says that those who are not elders should be subject to the elders. And this is a good thing when the elders are doing their job the way they should. If the elders are laying their lives out for the sheep, if the elders are not exploiting the sheep, it should be a good thing to follow the elders' leadership. And my prayer is that we as elders in this church would always be serving faithfully and that as we do so, that you would follow faithfully. But then he concludes, verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, so whether you're an elder or a non-elder, with humility toward one another. That is, there's this picture of us being humble towards one another. We're not seeking our own status. We're not seeking our own interest. The elders are humbly serving the flock. The flock is humbly following the elders. We're all humbly clothing ourselves with humility toward one another. The language he uses is one of armor or clothing, that you equip or you gird on this humility. That is, we wear it like it's our everyday clothes. We don't go out of the house without it. You put on your humility and you live together in humility that we as a church might stand firm. And so he says, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He says, Humble yourselves, under the hand of God, so humble your, clothe yourself with humility to one another, humble yourselves towards God, but do so trusting God, trusting that at the proper time God will exalt those who humble themselves, that the path to exaltation, the path to glory for the Christian is the path of humility toward one another and toward God. 
And as you do so, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen. You can cast all your anxieties about what may happen, about the threats that may be posed to the church. You can cast all those things on God, trusting that he cares for you. And that can free you if you're an elder from seeking to protect yourself. That can free you if you're a non-elder to humbly serve others because you know that God is in control and that he will protect his people. So Peter here is calling for a way of life together that is humble and that enables us as a community to be united so that we can stand firm. But then in verse 8, he turns to addressing an external threat. So he's been talking about our relationships together, but now he shifts to talking about an external threat. He tells us to watch. Verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says, I want you to realize what's really going on. There is a danger, Peter says. There is an enemy. There is a predator, a lion who's prowling around, and he's looking to eat you up, to devour you alive. And he's prowling around, and you need to know he's prowling around, because if you don't know that, you won't be ready. He says, I want you to be on the lookout, to be on guard. I had an aunt who lived in the north woods of Minnesota. She lived by herself in a house in the woods. And pretty regularly, she would get bears that would come looking for food. And they would come and they would sometimes would knock on her house, not on the door, but on the house trying to get in. Now, she had to be on the watch for them. She had to be on the lookout for these bears. And she had to be ready if they were to come. Now, it would have been foolish of her as if she wasn't sober-minded and watchful. This is the third time that Peter uses this sober-minded language. And earlier in the book, he's contrasted it with a way of life where you're just living for your pleasures, including sexual pleasure or excessive drinking, those sorts of things. If my aunt didn't realize there was a bear and got smashed and passed out on her front porch and the bear shows up, she'd be in trouble, right? That w- and especially if she knew there were bears coming around and she did that, that would be even more foolish, correct? What Peter is saying here is he's saying, you have an enemy, Christian, who's looking to devour you, who's prowling around, and you need to keep your guard up. You need to be on watch. You need to be sober-minded. You need to be watchful because there is a threat. Elders need to be watching over the flock, but the whole church needs to be on guard against our enemy. Now, there are ways to go the wrong way with this, to see the devil in every corner and under everything that happens. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. But we do need to realize that this is a reality, and we need to be prepared. We need to be on watch. We need to be looking at our own lives. Is there sin in me? Are there areas where I am susceptible? We need to be looking out for one another. We need to be on the lookout. A guard should be posted. We need to be prepared. So we need to watch. But we also need to resist, verses 9 through 11. It's not enough to just see the lion coming. We also need to plant our feet and stand our ground against him. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith. This word resist is a defensive word. It's an active word, so it's not something we do passively. It's standing someplace and defending a particular position. It's a military term. And so he's saying, Christians, 
you have an enemy who's prowling around looking to devour you, and so you need to stand your ground against him. You need to fight back against him. You need to resist him firm in your faith. You need to plant your feet, and you need to fight. This is not passive. This is not just, I'll just sit back and not do anything. This is active fighting, but it's not an offensive war. It's a defensive war. We're seeking to stand against the devil's attacks. Now, Peter, remember, the context is writing to Christians who are feeling the pressure of following Jesus in a world that doesn't love Jesus. They are feeling the pressure of increased hostility. And just years later, probably about two years after Peter wrote this, he himself would be killed in a wide-scale persecution in Rome. These were not abstract threats. And he's saying you need to resist Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that you're not alone in this, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Saying you together need to stand. These are all plural again. Resist is plural. Watch is plural. Be sober-minded is plural. So they're instructions to us as a community. But he's saying you need to know you're not alone. Shep is not alone in standing against the devil. The church in Galatia is not alone in standing against the devil. The church in Rome, where Peter is likely writing from, is not alone in standing against the devil. And they're not alone in this suffering. Peter doesn't say this fighting is going to be easy and you're never going to take any slings or arrows. He refers to it as suffering. But he says the suffering is not unique. It's suffering that is affecting the church throughout the world. And you need to be prepared to stand together as a church, but to stand together in solidarity with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's saying you need to put on humility so that you'll be unified to stand against attack. You need to watch and be on your guard. You need to resist. But this resistance, he grounds in the grace of God. He doesn't just say, do this, it's going to be hard and it's going to be terrible. He says, do this because the God of all grace, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He says, you're standing, you're going to fight, you're going to suffer, but after you've suffered for a little while, God himself will restore you. He will confirm you. That word confirm is from the same root word as to stand. So he's saying, you'll be fighting, you'll be in the battle, you'll be suffering, but God will come and he'll strengthen your position. He'll establish you. He will defend you. You will win in the end, Peter says. The devil will not defeat the church. The gates of hell will not overcome the church. The church can rely on God and we can stand and place our flag in the ground and defend our position because we know that God will be our deliverer, that God will be our restorer, that God will confirm and strengthen and establish us, and that to him is the dominion forever and ever. So Peter is saying you can stand in the current time against the devil because God will win the victory for you. Because the future is secure, you aren't going to lose. You may suffer for a little bit in quarter one, but for the rest of it, you'll win. And this fits with what Peter has been saying the whole book, right? Chapter one, he goes into that long explanation of blessing. He says, you're going through the fiery trial, but God has an inheritance ahead for you. One that is unperishing, unfading, undefiled. God's going to guard you for that inheritance, right? said that in chapter one. It's the same thing here. He's saying, you're going to fight. You need to stand. You need to watch. It's going to be hard. You're going to suffer. 
but God will deliver you. God will restore you. God will win. God wins in the end, and you will find glory when you follow him. And so we can resist trusting in God. And lastly, in all of this, we stand firm, putting on humility, watching and resisting as we love one another, but also our fellow brothers and sisters throughout the world. Peter says, verse 12 through 14, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter here sends these churches that are being besieged, that they're under pressure, and he says, the church I'm at, the church in Babylon, that's a code word for the church in Rome, is chosen with you. Like you, they're chosen by God. Like you, they are exiles in this world, and like you, we're going through sufferings. We're in Babylon. Babylon's not a good place. In the Old Testament, it's almost always a bad place of exile. But he says, we're suffering, we're chosen like you, we're exiles like you, and we send you our greetings. I send you my greetings, Mark sends you my greetings, I'm sending you Silas, my faithful brother, he sends you my greetings, and I want you as a church to greet one another with the kiss of love. So there's this picture of solidarity between churches, between the church in Jerusalem and the churches in these various areas. There's to be solidarity and love within the church. We're to greet one another with the kiss of love. We don't kiss each other when we greet each other. That's not something we do culturally. But they're to greet one another in love. They're to welcome Silvanus with love when he shows up with the letter. And Peter is writing to them out of love. That's why he wrote the letter, because he loves them. He wants to see them stand, and he wants to see them blessed by God. So it ends on this beautiful note of love. Love within the church, love between churches, love of Peter for the churches. Love that is to mark all of our lives together. Friends, we will not be able to stand firm against the devil. We will not be able to stand firm as a church unless we love one another. We will not be able to guard one another from the attacks of the devil or to care for one another, or to encourage one another, unless we love one another. And so we need to love, to love well, to love when it's costly, to love in humility, to love seeking one another's good, because we aren't in this on our own. We're in this together. We're in this with the church of God throughout the world. And if we're divided, we won't be able to stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand, Jesus says. But if we're united in love, we can stand. So Peter says, God has shown us true grace. He has chosen us. He's made us his own. He's guarding us. He has a future ahead of us. And so we need to stand firm. Elders, help the church stand firm by putting on humility. Don't seek your own interests. Seek the interests of the church. Church, stand firm together, following the elders' leadership. All of us, clothed ourselves with humility toward one another and then together we need to keep a watch be sober-minded watch out for our enemy resist him stand firm trusting that god will win the battle and in all of this let us love one another knowing that god has loved us and that if we love one another we will be able to stand finally i want to end our sermon with an encouragement from peter 
The last verse here is a very encouraging verse for us. Peace to all of you who are in Christ, Peter says. Peter is writing to people under pressure, to a church following Jesus, to a church that's going through it, and yet he concludes with this, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace in the midst of storms, peace in the midst of hostility, peace in the midst of the attacks of the devil, peace to all of you who are in Christ. We have a God who cares for us, a God who loves us, a God who will guard us, a God who will deliver us, a God who will bring us total and final lasting peace when Christ returns. And so as we go out into our world, as those chosen by God, as aliens and strangers, we don't need to fear, we don't need to be worried, we can have peace because we are in Christ. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God who has chosen us and made us your people. That you have given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us, who by faith are being guarded by your power for the salvation that is to come when Christ Jesus returns. Would you help us to follow you faithfully, to stand firm in humility, watching, resisting, and loving. Would you be glorified in our lives, and would you bring us peace? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me as we sing?